Hi team, and thanks for tuning in to the Cyber Millennial Podcast, a community dedicated to ambitious and successful millennials. And today with us, we have Stephanie Andrews. Steph's love for storytelling started at a very young age when she was writing stories and creating small film projects. While attending Ryerson University back in 2014, she founded Origins Magazine. It was a platform that shared the raw realities of entrepreneurial journeys, kind of similar to what we do here now. In 2016, she joined Chatter Research. It was acquired by Stingray later on, but she joined as their head of marketing at the time, and she directly assisted with lending major clients. In 2018, she saw the need for audio-first content. She fell in love with podcasting as a way for brands to conveniently build strong relationships with their customer base. At that time, she pivoted Origins Magazine to Origins Media House. It became a boutique podcast and video agency focused on helping brands create engaging audio experiences. She took the leap into full-time entrepreneurship as a CEO. After that, fast forward to 2020, Origins Media House was acquired by Quill. Now, Steph is on their team as head of production. She continuously finds the edge between growth and balance. During this episode, she'll be discussing how to start your own company, what are the challenges that entrepreneurs face, what are the new trends in podcasting, and if you want to start a podcast, what you need to do to be successful. She will share so many tips, you don't want to miss this episode. And with that, please welcome Stephanie. Hi, Steph. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I am great. Thank you for being with us here and super excited to have you. You've got lots of stuff on the go, lots of cool events happening this year. Happy and excited to get into it. So for the listeners who don't know who you are and what you do, let's start with a little introduction so you can tell more about yourself. Yeah, sure thing. So I'm Steph and I'm formerly the founder and CEO of Origins Media House, which was a podcast production agency here in Toronto. We were recently acquired by Quill in September, which is awesome, really exciting. Um, I got started kind of in a, it was a weird way to start. It definitely wasn't a linear path to what I did. But in my first year of university, I walked into my first year business class and basically was told that 95% of startups fail. And me being a person who had always wanted to start her own business was basically sitting there in the front row being like, okay, this sucks. Great. Awesome. <laughs> I was like, what do I do about this? And also being that kid in high school who always had like, you know, straight A's, I was always like perfect and like academically and everything. I always felt so much pressure to do really, really well. And so I didn't want to fail. And so what I figured I would do was interview the 5% of entrepreneurs that had made it or deemed successful. And so I started an online magazine called Origins Magazine. And we interviewed over 100 entrepreneurs, talked to them about how they started their own businesses. And what I realized was there was this really interesting common thread of entrepreneurs that you know, would say that business isn't really like the glamorous thing that everyone talks about, right? Like it's about grit and it's about hustle and sometimes it really sucks. And that's what I really wanted to tell is I wanted to tell that story that people weren't talking about. So long story short, uh, we ended up getting incubated with the magazine and started dabbling into podcasts. And we started 
interviewing entrepreneurs through the audio medium and really fell in love with it and realized that audio was a really brilliant way to be able to connect brands to consumers and for people to tell their stories in an authentic way. And so we ended up pivoting the company in, I believe it was 2018, the summer of 2018, into a full-service podcast agency. And we grew it from there, ended up getting acquired years later. But yeah, definitely a strange, linear, a very not linear path, but <laughs> that's a little bit about me. I love the story and thank you for sharing. I love the concept of, you know, you just thought that there is a way to do it. There is a way to succeed. Just have to hustle, have some grit, you know, be able to persevere and find a way. And you clearly did find a way. Now, when you started the business first, it was just you, I assume. And how difficult was it? Can you tell us more about what thoughts went through your mind? Like, you know, were you just oblivious to all the hard things or did you come prepared? No, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be challenging. And here's the list of things I got to figure out. Oh yeah. No, I was oblivious. To give you some context, I was 17 when I started. I was literally like a baby in first year university. And I remember coming up with these concepts for what I wanted this blog to look like, which is essentially how it started. I had no idea how to do a website. I had zero clue what I was doing. I knew that we were going to need like photography and I knew we could write things, but I had no idea how to do really anything. And so what's really funny is a few months in after me like struggling to literally do anything because I had zero experience in the field and just had no clue what to do other than just like Googling things. I eventually found my two co-founders, um, Allie and Britt. So Britt came on. I somehow managed to recruit her for a photo shoot for one of the entrepreneurs that we were interviewing. And she came on board and just never left. And I was like, please never leave me. And she still works with me today. And Allie came on board basically to help us with social media. She is actually a childhood friend of mine. And when she moved to Toronto, I was like, would you please help me? Like, I think you're interested in this. Like, would you be down? And she came along for the ride as well. So I was really, really lucky. And I think there wasn't really a formula to the way that I picked my co-founders at all, other than they were just willing to help. And we were very lucky that all of us just have very similar mindsets and it was a really beautiful co-foundership for the past five years. And I'm so grateful for both of them. (laughs) I like it because, you know, a lot of people say that sometimes they fall into being with co-founders and their high school friends or university friends, and then things don't work out and go really, really bad. So I'm glad that for you guys, it all worked out for the best. Now, is there a formula you think people should follow when they pick co-founders? Like, what are you supposed to look for? I know, right? It's such an interesting question because I've always wondered that. I was like, did I do this wrong? Like, I don't know. We, we seem to work well together. But I think the biggest thing is really just being able to own your individual spaces and really respect each other's perspectives. Because the three of us were so close, like the three of us are all best friends and we just ended up getting along really well throughout this entire process. Sometimes when you blend friendship with business, like lines get blurred and sometimes it can be hard to not necessarily respect the other person's perspective, but it can be hard to disagree or say, you know, no, I don't think this is right. Or you have a healthy argument without it sounding like I'm angry at you. And so I think it's really important that for the three of us anyways, 
Britt kind of had her creative space and the technical space. And she really knew that she was good at that. And so we always really respected her opinion there because we knew that she was the expert in that area. And for Allie, she was really good at branding and business development and um, marketing. And so I also came from a business development and marketing background as well. And for a while, we actually clashed a little bit there and like we bumped heads. And what we both had to learn through that experience was that you know, I needed to respect that she knew what she was doing in the marketing space and I needed to let go of control. And she also needed to respect that I had an opinion as well, right? And so I think by doing that, we were able to separate out those roles and really end up with this beautiful mutual respect for each other that we still have today. And I'm, although it was a rough year, I would say that that was happening, it was definitely worth it because it made us so much stronger in the end and really helped us find our individual niches. Oh, that's, that's such a great story. Now, in terms of if you had really big conflicts or big decisions to make, so for example, when you guys were getting acquired, was everybody on board? Did you have to convince someone? And then were there any other decisions throughout the process where a lot of things were going down and maybe you disagreed? How do you handle that? Because if you have a few co-founders and you all have to come to a consensus, how do you do it if you all have different opinions? We were really lucky that when the big decisions happened, we were always aligned. I don't know how that happened. I feel like most of the time that's not the case. And I think we're definitely a rare uh, group. But for us, I think the biggest thing with OMH was we just never took ourselves seriously. Like everything that happened, regardless if it was a horrible experience, like we had moments in the business where we literally almost crashed it and we thought we were going bankrupt and we were laughing about it. And when we were getting acquired, we were making these huge decisions and we were laughing about it. Like nothing was... I don't know, heavy, I guess, in a way, we tried to make sure that everything felt like light. And if someone, you know, disagreed or had a different opinion, we always tried to see both sides of it. Like for me, being in the role that I was as CEO, the biggest thing for me was making sure that everyone had a voice and everyone felt like they were being understood. And if maybe the decision that was made wasn't exactly what that other person wanted, like I remember specifically during the acquisition process, there were a couple of notes that I know, like we all had like slightly different opinions on. We're like, okay, well, what can we take from each of these and compromise on it to make sure that it's a happy compromise? First of all, it's not like we're all unhappy with it, but we all have parts of ourselves within that decision. And we all feel like we were a valued member of what that could be. And I think that was a really big thing is letting your ego drop at the door and think about, okay, as a whole, what is best for all three of us? And I think all of us really had that in mind. It was never about what's best for me. I always thought about what's best for them. And I think both of them also had that mentality as well. I like the letting go of your ego at the door and leaving it behind. This is, this is good. So question for you in terms of acquisition and when you're, you know, was it something planned? Was it something you guys are striving towards or is it something that naturally happened because your company was growing and doing so well and it just seemed like a great alignment? Yeah, it's actually a really funny story. So we always, <laughs> again, back to this, like the three of us were always, <laughs> Just everything was a joke. So while we were running it, like we knew things were going well. There was money coming in the bank. We were able to like increase our salaries. Like we felt like things were doing good. And we made a strategic partner with Quill, who is the company that did eventually acquire us. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, they bring in a lot of leads. Like we need to find some other acquisition channels. And 
I found that what was beautiful about Quill though, and the reason we really didn't go out to find as many other like acquisition channels to bring in more customers was because we just loved working with them so much. Although we knew to grow the business, we should be looking for other avenues. It was more like, why would we though? Because we're such a good unified team in a way. And I remember Fatima, like my CEO now, she came up to me in January and was like, would you guys be interested in an acquisition? And at that point, the three of us had this running joke that OMH was just putting along and we just, it was just going to keep going. It's, (laughs) it never dies, which is not the way you should look at a business, but not at all. I don't think there's a wrong or a right way, but I love your approach. This is like, this is great. Yeah. We were just really chilled. And And so we're like, yeah, before that, everything was just kind of butting along and it was just happening. And we're like, whatever gets thrown at us, we'll deal with it at the time. And I remember uh, when she came up to us with that like approach, I was like, wow, there's an exit here. (laughs) I was like, what? I was like, oh my God, finally, this is something that we could do. And it really made us sit back and actually think about, okay, like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, it's fun and this is a great business and we like what we do, but like, what is the plan? And I think before that we hadn't really planned that much. Like we knew, you know, year to year, like what our goals were and we were strategic about that stuff. But in terms of like an exit or anything like that, we were just kind of all along for the ride and really viewed the whole thing as a learning experience. And so when that happened, I remember going back to Alan Britton being like, would you guys um, be interested in an acquisition? And they would be like, yeah, okay. And then, so we started talking about it and that's actually what started really getting us in the mindset of like, okay, we need to start making moves strategically here that's going to set us up for that later down the road because we wanted to make sure that like we eventually did get acquired in the next like couple of years because we all realized within those conversations that although we all loved each other and we loved our business we didn't want to be doing it for that much longer (laughs) so that's really where it came from and that's kind of how the decision was eventually made and luckily the conversations kept going with quill and led up to that acquisition point in september this is amazing. And I like how, you know, you mentioned the story that you were doing it without having an exit plan in mind, because a lot of people really emphasize that when you start the business, you have to have some kind of exit. But the idea is you can't really plan two years down the road or more than two years down the road. So you don't really know what's going to happen. And this kind of came at you at the right time. And you were smart enough to pivot and realize that, you know what, it's a great opportunity. And now you can be a bigger company. So I guess, how does it work now with Quill? Like you guys are still with Quill. You're still doing the roles that you were doing before, or did your roles change completely? Yeah. So our roles are similar to what they were at OMH, but they definitely did change a little bit, specifically my role. So once we got acquired, I came on to Quill as their head of production. Britt is the head of sound and technical um, management. And then Ali is our head of marketing. So in terms of their roles, like really the way that OMH was set up was very similar where Britt always handled the technical aspects of the sound and actually like creating the podcast and making sure it sounded as beautiful as possible. I generally managed the clients and the production process. And then Ali always managed our brand and our marketing. So that part of it didn't really change. For me, what changed was not being a founder anymore and not being a CEO anymore. And I think one of my biggest challenges through, and this is throughout my entire career, has always been letting go of control. And 
it was an interesting couple of months. I know Fatima can definitely speak to that as well when we came on because I thought that I was ready to let go of it. Like when we signed the acquisition papers, I remember being so relieved. I was like, oh, five years of weight off of my shoulders. Like I didn't have time to be a kid even like, cause I was building this whole company while I was in university. I was like, oh my God, like I can relax. Like hallelujah. And I remember as soon as we got into the roles and we started working, I just had this drive. I was like, oh, I want more. Like I want to be a part of this more. Like I want a bigger chunk. Like I want to be doing more. And I think part of that is just because I had always known everything about OMH. I always knew everything that was going on in the company. And it's really hard to make that adjustment from knowing everything and being, you know, that center person to being more of just a part of the whole and a part of the team. Right. And that was a tougher transition for me than I would like to admit. But now I think, you know, what was good about it was that Fatima and I have a really good relationship and we were able to sit down and talk to each other about like how we were feeling and just have that open, direct communication. And I'm really grateful for that because that really helped me get over it. And now I feel like a lot better in my role and I'm it's actually just kind of relaxing. It's amazing. Like nine to five people, you have it right. Like I, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> and I think, you know what? I love that you're mentioning that you've had the challenges of letting go of control, stop being the CEO, stop being the decision maker. And you had to really let someone else make the decisions, even though you thought that you knew what you were doing in your company. Now it's a bigger entity with other things and more layers. So it's good to have support and you can still do a lot in your role and find more stuff to do. It just takes time and it's okay to take time for yourself. It's okay to just, you know, take back and just just relax. It's COVID. It's fine. Do more yoga. <laughs> but uh, no, on a, on a serious note, I love also that you mentioned that you and Fatima obviously had certain kind of conversations before and after, and now it's a great working relationship and you're able to get more responsibility and basically still fulfill yourself in the role that you're in without killing yourself for 14 hours a day. I think that's great. Yeah, me too. <laughs> There's a lot of misconception in um, in business, and I find it a lot with entrepreneurs when I talk to them. Is that you know before for some reason entrepreneurship, like let's say 20 years ago, did not exist. If you had your own business, you were basically a failure. Like, what do you mean you couldn't get a job? Then it became a glorified thing. We just swung to a completely different level. Entrepreneurship became sexy and new and exciting, and then the whole hustle 24/7 became a thing, and then not sleeping became a thing, and not eating became a thing, and now. It's kind of like, wait a second, there's nothing wrong with a lifestyle business. There's nothing wrong not being a billion dollar unicorn, maybe trying to get there, but like enjoying life that you're living without being busy all the time. What do you think? Oh, I fully relate to that. And I think that was a big thing actually that came with COVID for me was when the pandemic hit, like we were forced, like literally forced to sit with ourselves. (laughs) And for me, that was something that I hadn't ever actually done. And like I said, like I started my company when I was 17. And I wish that throughout the years that I was doing the company and building it, that I would have sat down with myself earlier and thought about, are you doing okay? Like, how is your mental health? Are you really doing everything that you can? Or are you dealing with your feelings? Or are you using the business as an escape? Or are you merging your business with your own identity. And I think that those were the 
really big questions that I was finally forced to sit down with and face with myself. And the reality of it was, is I looked back at everything that I had been doing and like not sleeping, not eating. Those are two classics for me. I remember there's a podcast actually, like that me and my co-founders used to record called Hustle Harder. And it's really funny because I was listening back to it for some reason, I don't know why, a couple of months ago. And it's all about balance. And I remember in the episode, we literally talk about how we're not sleeping, how we're not eating. And like, it was crazy to me. I was listening to it and I'm like, oh my God. And we were okay with it. That was the scariest thing. And now I look at it and I'm like, why? Like, why did you need to do that to yourself? It's not okay. Like that is just not Okay. And now I am like very passionate about talking about this because it's so important as entrepreneurs that you're taking care of your health and your wellness, because if you don't have your health, you literally can't do anything. And I've been in so many situations where it's like, my, I wasn't doing well and I wasn't making good decisions, even though I thought I was, and it impacted the people around me and like my family and my friends and my relationships. And for me, I justified it by thinking, oh, like that's okay because it's part of the sacrifice. It's part of the sacrifice that you do to run a business. And that should never be an excuse. And that's what I mean when I say like shielding yourself, like by using your business to do that and using it as a form of escape, because that's just an excuse for treating people like shit around you. (laughs) So, you know, I think that it's important that we sit with that and we think about that and we take this time to pause and reflect on how we were living before. So that way we can use those lessons to be better in the future. And that's what I've been doing. And part of the reason why we got acquired, I think, and why we decided to make that decision was so we could all sit and focus on ourselves and being better human beings. Thank you for sharing that. It, this is incredible. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs that come on the show, they do share the fact that, you know, mental health is important. And for some reason, it was never talked about before and it was supposed to be suppressed. You're supposed to pretend that you got it all together and you just can hustle harder and you can go further and you just, you know, supposed to silence it and eat your feelings and go out there, build the company and then deal with the rest later. And I'm glad and happy that a lot of people now open up about it saying it's tough. And sometimes you don't want to open an email or write back. And sometimes you think that you're going to go bankrupt because sometimes business is hard and you just have to manage it. You just have to find proper resources and it's okay to sit for a second and just take some time for yourself and some self-care. So I guess how did you deal with COVID? Let's put it that way. I mean, you just got acquired. Um, when we talked to Fatima, they said that, you know, they went through acquisition, building a company basically throughout the pandemic. And I'm sure with you guys, it was very similar. You had to operate for the past eight months, nine months in this weird, challenging times, especially considering that your company is based around creating content, visual and audio, and you couldn't meet people and see people. How was it? Yeah, it's been very strange. I think COVID to me is a mindset shift. And that's how I've been looking at it. Because as soon as things got locked down, it was like, at first it was the initial shock and we're figuring things out. And then it was like, okay, you can either look at this as, you know, and you see people out on the streets doing this. It's like, you can look at it as this sucks. This is unfair. This is, you know, whatever, whatever. And it does suck. It is unfair. But at the end of the day, like you can either look at that and you can focus on that or you can focus on the time that you have and you can focus on creating something or doing something of 
about it and making yourself happier. Right. And so for me, that's what I try and focus on is like, I try and find the good in this situation. It's obviously a strange time. It's awful for so many people and it's awful to see that. But at the end of the day, I believe that you can always pull something good, even out of the crappiest situation. So that's what I've been really trying to focus on. In terms of our business, it's been very weird because usually what we do is we're in studio with clients all the time, we're on shoots, and we were so used to being in public places. Like right before the pandemic, we were shooting a uh, concert series where we were going out and we were like hanging out with musicians and being in like the crowds at shows and um, getting to interview them. And it was really cool. But then obviously the pandemic hit and all of a sudden we couldn't shoot anything. And all of a sudden we couldn't go into our studio and we had to pivot around that. We were really lucky that in December, Britt had been exploring like options of remote recording because we have a couple of clients that were out West and they were kind of looking at, you know, how do, how do we do this when you guys are in Ontario and uh, we're out here. And so we had luckily found a software prior to COVID that we were experimenting with. But with that being said, it was very initial stages. We had never presented it to a client. And then all of a sudden, it all had to be remote. And we're like, I guess we're doing this. So we just pivoted it and we did as best as we could. And we learned a lot along the way. Remote recording is an art form, in my opinion. I don't know how Brit does it. (laughs) It's dealing with people's crappy Wi-Fi connections. It's finding ways for people to connect and still have that authentic conversation even when sometimes you can't see the other person. And luckily, I think Zoom's been really great for that because you can see people. In terms of the audio quality, we use a a software called CleanFeed, which has a lower voice compression. So it does sound more natural and less robotic. And we've worked uh, with our clients on ways of how we can make that even more clear. So, you know, getting mics, finding, you know, small spaces in their homes. Sometimes it's putting our clients literally in their own closets to record, <laughs> but that's what gets the best sound quality. And we've luckily been able to improve it now to a point where it's almost on par with what it was in the studio, but it took time and it took a lot of patience in terms of like our performance though. I would say we were very, very lucky because although, you know, video was a part of our company, it wasn't a big part of our company. We were mostly podcasting. We were lucky that we were able to pivot everything remotely. And we were also lucky that the demand for podcasts actually increased from brands because they were trying to find these new authentic ways of reaching their customers now that they couldn't actually see them in person and try and give them information or resources about what was happening. So, you know, the first week was nuts. We weren't sure what was going to happen. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, everyone wants a podcast (laughs) or everyone is starting a podcast. And so we were very lucky and we were able to expand and grow based off of that. And uh, Fatima was with us every step of that way as well. Cause we really like focused on strengthening our partnership at that point. Cause we're like, Oh my God, like, I don't think either of us can do this on our own. So let's figure out how we foster this together. And I think that has made our team really strong in the end. This is incredible. I mean, it sounds like a very productive a COVID year for you guys all around. I think it's great. And I mean, since we're talking about podcasting and you're absolutely right, everybody's starting a podcast right now. Look at me. For people who are trying to figure out what to do, how to do it, are there any small tips that you would recommend, either equipment, software, as you mentioned, who are trying to do it basically 
out of their home, whether they're a digital creator or a brand or a one-person solopreneur trying to figure it out, what would be your tips? I would say the biggest thing with your podcast is treat it like an actual brand and treat it like it's an actual business, even if it is a branded podcast. And what I mean by that is that your podcast, like a business, needs to have a goal. So what is the one thing that you're trying to accomplish through your podcast? Are you trying to get sponsorship? Are you trying to bring leads into the door? Are you trying to create a community? Are you trying to connect with your consumers' values and maybe boost some awareness about your brand? All of those objectives and goals are really, really valid. But what you need to do is really define what exactly it is that you're trying to get out of it. And it can be a couple of those things. It can be a combination. Like That's definitely not a comprehensive list. But define that first. And then from there, once you have that goal in mind, then figure out, okay, who is my podcast going to appeal to? What is my ideal listener profile, which I fully stole from ideal customer profile. But essentially, like it's a picture of who exactly your listener is. So like, think about, you know, what age they are, what gender they are, what they like to do in their spare time, what is their career, what is their goals and their ambitions in life? And why do they want to listen to your content? Is it because it's a comedy podcast, and they need a break from the things that are happening around them? Is it maybe a business podcast where you're giving like a different type of insight and like C-level executives really, really need that? There's a ton of different things that you can think about, but that's really getting into the mindset of who that listener is and why they would tune in. And then once you create that, I also tell people to look at your categories in the actual podcast platform. So let's say you're starting a business podcast, for example, like the one you have here. Like I love that yours is focused on millennials. It's niche. Like you have something that is like actually giving value to a niche like listener um, base. Whereas, you know, there's a lot of generic podcasts out there that target everyone. And by targeting everyone, you're targeting no one. And then they wonder why they don't get any downloads. I was thinking about it, but then I was like, oh, I should better focus. And you know how difficult it is to guess the age of human beings that you're talking to? You're like, I think they fit. <laughs> it's true. And I do this all the time. I get it. But yeah. And then like, look at what I always say is like, look at that competitive matrix and be like, okay, so what are the top like shows in my category and then look at them in terms of like, what is their format? What is their length? What is the host like? You know, what information are they giving? And just kind of do like unique bullet point notes, like breakdown, and then think about what makes them really, really good and what maybe they could improve on. And then what you really want to look at is the, what they can improve on section and figure out how you can implement all of that into your podcast. So then you can differentiate it within your space and think about what can listeners get from my show that they're not getting from anywhere else in the category because that's what's going to create a sustainable growth for your podcast. And then my last tip is definitely treat it like a marathon and not a sprint. I think people start a podcast and 10 episodes in, they have like 100 downloads an episode and they're like, ugh, this is not going to work for me. And it's like, well, first of all, Look at your marketing tactics. See like are you, how you're reaching your audience. Think about that ideal listener profile again. Like try and get it out into the world. Maybe there's something that you're not doing. And then also when you're 10 episodes in, you haven't given listeners enough time to even find your podcast. So how do you expect to have listeners? It doesn't make any sense to me. It's not like a video where you can go and promote it on Facebook ads, right? So you know you're, you need to look at it from the long term and make sure that it's sustainable. And so whether that's creating a 
schedule for yourself to, you know, every two weeks, I'm going to record and I'm going to spend this many hours on it per month because I know that I have that banked and I can do that. Then there you go. That's good. Like you're well on your way. But I feel like a lot of people think this is like a quick and easy way to grab some sponsors and make some money. And that's not what podcasting is about. So I totally agree with you and appreciate the tips. Like I'm, I'm taking notes as we speak because um, you're absolutely right. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. You know, people who say that their podcast blew up overnight, there was something else in the mix that they're not telling you, or maybe there was extra time put into marketing beforehand, or maybe they're just that amazing when they started. They were just really good with everything. Because I think a lot of the times people start the podcast and... Uh, it takes time to get good because you need to figure out what questions to ask. How do you deal with awkward pauses? For example, for me, a lot of people I'm interviewing, I know you, I've met you before, but some people I've never met before. For example, Fatima, when I was with her on the phone, you just get on the phone and it's a random person in front of you in the camera and you have an hour <laughs> and you better ask really good questions. And if you don't, well, then I guess that episode will probably be edited quite a lot. I think that's another thing that, you know, it takes a lot of time. People ask me all the time and you would probably attest to it. Like how long would it take you to edit a podcast or create a podcast from start to finish, from recording to editing to marketing materials? How long would it take, do you think, on average for you guys? Ooh, it's, a, it's a long process and people don't realize that either. I think people think that you can record a podcast and then some people put no editing into it. I've seen that before and I'm like, okay. And like, you know, if you put zero effort into it, yes, you can get it down to like two hours, but your show is not going to be very good if you do that. And if you're actually putting in like a solid amount of effort, I mean, going through an hour of audio even in post-production and getting rid of like the ums and the ahs and cleaning up the audio and like, you know, putting in like noise reduction filters, that kind of stuff, like, you know, the really technical aspect of it, that can take a really long time. I mean, it depends on how bad the audio is and if the person you're interviewing was a good speaker but generally on average like that can take up to like four to five hours at least just to do content cuts <laughs> and if you're doing it like if you're being tedious about it sometimes it can take less if you're you know being a little less like crazy like when I do it I'm pretty insane about taking out like breaths and ums and that kind of stuff and sometimes people do that a lot so it can take a very long time but that can take up to, like I said, five hours. And then when you're doing that, like then it's also about, okay, well, if you want to put music in it, if you want to put the intros in it, if you want to do transitions, you have to chop those up and throw those in. If you want to do musical transitions, if you want to throw in soundscapes or sound effects, like there's all of that kind of stuff. And you have to make sure that it flows nicely and sounds natural to the listener. And then on top of that, then, you know, making sure the volume is all nice and even and making sure that the sound is as good as possible after that. So it can take quite a bit of time. I mean, there's ways that you can reduce that, obviously. And shorter podcasts will take less time, longer podcasts will take more time. But yeah, I mean, that's the biggest thing is I think in terms of production, like podcasts is a long form medium. So you need to plan the time accordingly. And you need to think about it like it's 40 minutes to an hour because sometimes it's 40 minutes to an hour instead of a two minute video. <laughs> so. I, I totally agree with you. So then I guess when you're done with the podcast and you know, you have the content and sometimes it's good to record in video and audio. That's what we're doing because, you know, the ideal way is potentially you can use audio and video separately for different mediums, social media. Now, in terms of marketing, 
you have a podcast, how do you market it? And how do you make sure that you have the right amount of eyes without breaking your budget? Do you go to LinkedIn? Do you go to Instagram, Spotify? Like, are there other channels to market the podcasts on? Yeah, for sure. So I love this question because I get this question all the time. It's so important. And what we say, like Quill actually, and Fatima has coined this, is that production is half of your podcast and marketing is the other half. And I cannot agree more with that because if you spend way too much time on your production and not enough time on your marketing, you're not going to get enough audience on it. And what people don't realize is audience is motivating, right? So like when you get more eyeballs and listeners eyeballs. I guess it's ears. Yeah. The ears on your podcast. So when you get that on your podcast, like that's also a motivator because you're like, Oh, people are listening to me. People get what I'm saying. They like it. And when you see that, you know, the tension curve and you see that people aren't dropping off. That's another way to motivate yourself. Right. And so I kind of look at it from that angle, as well as like from an audience growth standpoint, obviously you want to try and reach as many people as possible, depending on what your goal is with your show. If you want sponsorship, you want to make sure that you're growing consistently every episode. So in terms of how to actually market your podcast, there's a few different ways. I look at it as three different layers. So I look at it as awareness. And then I look at it as, yeah, so awareness, keeping people top of mind, consideration, you know, getting them to maybe click through, look at the podcast, look at the description, see if it's something that they're actually interested in. And then I also look at it from a conversion standpoint in terms of actually getting people into listeners, which I mean, is basically a marketing funnel. But in terms of those layers, when it comes to podcasting, I look at awareness as like more so PR, like you're not going to be getting like a direct click to download rate or anything from that. You're not going to see it directly correlate, but it's super important because the number one way that people find podcasts is word of mouth. So if you're not spreading awareness of your podcast, if you're not getting PR around it, if you're not doing other people's podcasts or using social media to your advantage to get more eyeballs on your content, then people aren't going to know about your show and they're never going to search for it. And so that's an issue. That's number one. And then number two is in terms of like the comparison, you want to try and like intrigue people about like what the value is of your podcast and what that content actually is. So it's not necessarily always about people engaging with your show on your platform. I like to look at it as a holistic perspective. So it's also about, are people engaging on your social media channels? Are people liking your posts? Are they commenting? Are they having a dialogue about what you're saying? Is it, you know, even if it's an audiogram, are you able to create some kind of conversation around that or some type of community? And I think that's a really important aspect because when you have a podcast community, listeners can connect to one another because they relate to the content. And then that's going to create a ripple effect again with that word of mouth. And so it all kind of holistically goes together. That's going to create more organic engagement, more organic listeners. And then lastly, my favorite way to promote a podcast that I think is the smartest and most niche way of doing it is look at what you can do in audio. So a lot of people, when they think about advertising, and it makes sense because this is all we've known really up to this point as marketers is they think about PR, they think about social media, they think about ads, which is fair. Like you should, absolutely. Those are like, you know, the two tops that I just mentioned. But what you're not realizing by thinking about that is that you're taking a listener off of the platform that they're already on and you're making them take an action on another platform and running it in the background. And so what you want to do is you want to look at how you can target listeners while they're already in their own podcast app. And also because then you're targeting people who actually listen to podcasts because avid podcast listeners generally listen to seven to 10 episodes a week. 
So those are the people that you really want to get to. And so how you do that is you can cross promote with other podcasts. So people who are similar in your space that have a similar audience network, you know, they put an ad for your show in their podcast, you put an ad for their show in, in your podcast, and it's a happy friendship. And you know, you can kind of cross promote listeners that way. Another way is if you have some ad dollars, you can sponsor similar podcasts in your space. So there are a ton of different resources. You can also just reach out to the show directly and say, Hey, like, if I give you 200 bucks, would you put a pre-roll ad slot for 20 seconds in your show and see what they say? I mean, for that's like 200 bucks. I mean, that's kind of for a smaller audience. That'd be for like maybe 500 to a thousand listeners or so, but still like that's people that you're not getting in front of before. Right. So I think that's really important. And then the last thing is you can do Spotify ads as well. And a lot of people don't realize, but Spotify's um, user base is generally about 50% paid and 50% free. And actually, the audience growth is that it's generally like millennials, which for podcasting, if you like look into podcast ads, it's affluent millennials who are listening to podcasts. <laughs> yes, perfect for the show. Spotify ads work really well there, right? So you can run that, you can run 30 second ads. And generally, we've found we've been experimenting with this at, at Quill quite a bit is you're going to be getting listeners like for every hundred bucks or so you can expect to get like, depending on the show, anywhere from like 50 to 80 listeners. So that's a good way because once you kind of have an effective like, okay, this is how much I'm going to pay for my listeners. Then if you're looking at a sponsorship model, you can actually calculate that out. You can calculate your break-even point. So let's say I'm paying, I don't know, a dollar per listener or something, right? So you know that to get a sponsorship, you need a thousand listeners. So that means that you need to pay a thousand dollars to be able to get a sponsorship slot. But then, okay, so if I'm going to charge $200 a sponsorship slot, then I know that I need to have five, I need to sell it as a package of five to break even on that point, right? So that's something as well that you can look at. And that's also what I mean when I say treat a podcast like a brand and like a business. There is so much value and I, I love it. So, I mean, first of all, everybody should be taking notes because, I mean, this is the way of the future. And right now, I, I, even Fatima said that, you know, podcasting is still not a saturated space. If you find a niche that you are good at and that resonates with the audience, you could really make some waves happen. But in terms of, I guess, marketing the podcast, we went through it, uh, trying to find sponsorship. Do you reach out to brands yourself? Do you kind of let them find you? Is that a mix of both? And what should your pitch to them say? Like, what are you supposed to offer to not sound crazy to a brand? If you're just a podcast and like you're trying to reach out to a brand and you are asking them to sponsor you, right? To get their sponsorship dollars for you versus any other podcast. For example, you have a cooking show and you're reaching out to... I don't know, a brand of pots to sponsor your podcast so they can pay some ad dollars and you put an ad for pots and your cooking show, it makes sense. But there's a bunch of other cooking shows. So how do you make them choose you? Is it just the numbers game? Are you supposed to just have the most amount of engaged listeners or what else can attract them? What I find the biggest thing with podcasts is, is that you're able to reach niche audiences and it's not necessarily about how many downloads you have. Like, yes, you want to make sure you have a substantial enough that it makes it worth it for someone to sponsor your podcast. Like if you have 50 listeners an episode, that's probably not worth it. So think about that in a logical way. But if you have, you know, a couple hundred, well, I would say like 500 plus listeners an episode, I think it's possible to get sponsorship. 
It's just a matter of selling it as a niche product, right? And so A, that ideal listener profile again is comes back because you know who your listeners are. And that's also why it's really important to not only use podcast analytics because they're super limited. Like you can see, you know, their age, you can see their gender, you can see what types of music they listen to, but you can't really see anything else about them other than their retention rate and when they're dropping off in the podcast. So if you have social channels, then you can see a lot more of that demographics and you can see if it's matching up with that ideal listener profile. And if it is, that's great. And if it's not, then maybe you need to rejig your content or maybe you need to rejig your ILP because it's appealing to someone that you didn't ever think that you would appeal to. And so knowing who that audience is, is really important because then what you can do is you can go and you can sell it and be like, okay, so here are my listeners and your brand directly relates to this. And even though, yes, it might have a smaller audience than what you would anticipate, the conversion rate is going to be so much higher because the audience is so niche and because they're going to relate to your brand more than what they would to someone else. And then also making sure that your price matches the value that the sponsor will be getting. Let's say that, you know, going back to that kitchen example, like let's say we're going to, you know, a pots and pans business and they're saying, okay, well, what is my expected conversion rate, right? Like they want to know what are they going to get out of it. And if you have 500 listeners an episode, then, you know, if we want to be conservative and say, okay, well, I'm expecting like a 10 to 20% conversion rate. So think about that and think about, okay, if that many people are driven, how many people are going to buy? What money is in their pocket then? How much are their pans and pots worth generally? And then think about it from the perspective of, okay, I need to price myself according to that. And I need to price myself to the ROI of that. And I think podcasting right now, the whole issue with sponsorship is that people are using a very outdated model. There was a model that was done by a really popular podcaster years ago that was basically said, charge $25 per thousand listeners. And that is so outdated because there are podcasts that charge A, way more than that, and also charge way less than that, and also don't have anywhere near those type of listeners to be charging in that model. And so I just think that if you're going to be charging, like, A, think about the results that you're going to be getting for your client. Think about, you know, what's worth it for you. Also, maybe it's a package, right? Like, maybe it's not just about putting one episode slot in, maybe it's giving them five episode slots. So they're reaching, you know, 500 times five listeners, right? So there's a lot of that that you kind of have to think about as well. Right now, podcasters are really all over the place in terms of how much they actually charge for sponsorships. And so I really wish people would think about it logically because I feel like unfortunately, sometimes what can happen is it alienates brands from wanting to sponsor because they think that that's the norm and it's not. And then also sometimes that can discourage podcasters who you know, are indie or trying to build their audiences. And they're like, well, I'm never going to get 10,000 listeners. And I'm never going to be able to charge $250 an episode. It's like, what? <laughs> that makes no sense. Absolutely right. It's similar to, you know, the chicken and the egg problem, or I guess in, in the influencer Instagram world, right? Like we are part of the problem, but we're also a part of the solution. Because if we just all unite and make sure that we do the right things, chances are it'll make the whole place better. And there'll be some rules, regulations around it, which probably will be better for everyone around us. I totally agree with that. So thank you for sharing that. Okay. So now is there a tool that you guys use to track growth, uh, performance, any kind of analytic tools for podcasters? 
Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of analytics, um, my biggest thing is, first of all, choose a good distribution platform. So how you get onto Spotify, Apple, you know, these are the people that create your RSS feed that allow you to get onto those platforms. So first and foremost, pick one that has good analytics to start with. So Simplecast is a really good one that I always recommend to people. Simplecast is great because it not only shows your downloads, but it also shows who your unique listeners are. So downloads are generally people who a metric of everyone. So let's say I'm someone and I listen to a podcast episode twice, that would count as two downloads, whereas a unique listener would count as one download. So a unique listener is actually a better metric of how many people you're actually reaching, whereas downloads is just a better benchmark. And that's where everyone in the industry will generally measure because every distribution platform will tell you downloads, not every distribution platform will tell you I unique listener. What am I saying? Sorry. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. If your mom is listening to your podcast over and over again, it may trick the brands thinking that you have uh, 200 extra listeners, but no, it's just your mom. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, I'm sure that my mom has listened to my podcast multiple times and has probably she, now the stats were lying to me, I'm sure. But <laughs> so yeah, that's a big one, first of all. And then from there, Another platform that you can use to supplement that as well is Chartable. So Chartable is actually one of the only platforms in the podcast space right now that allows you to track your marketing channels for podcasting. So what it does is a, it was originally created to track your position on the Apple charts. So basically to tell you, you know, what your ratings are, what your reviews are, where you are. So like, are you ranking number one? What chart are you ranking in? There's like a million charts. So you could be ranking in Canada business, you could be ranking in Romania business. We have one podcast that for some reason is like number three in Romania always. It's random, but they love him over there. So it's really funny. That's good because it can show you kind of where your listeners are and where it's getting picked up. And then smart links are another uh, avenue that it also created as well, which is what allows you to attract your marketing, like I mentioned before. So what you do is you create a smart link and for example, you can create a smart link for every single one of your marketing channels. So let's say it's social media and the other one is for your newsletter, for example. And then what that does is when you send that out to those different channels, it'll track A, how many clicks you get, but also how many downloads you get. So you can see what channels are actually bringing in listeners, not necessarily just what channels are bringing in clicks. So that's really important as well, because that will just help you grow track your podcast and show you where everything coming from. I got some work to do. That's what I realized after I get off the show, I have some work to do some things on Google and some things to download and organize. Thank you for this. I love it. Some takeaways as we are running uh, to a close time in terms of resources, uh, podcasts, obviously that you listen to things, you consume people, you follow anything you could recommend to our listeners. I'm biased, but obviously if you're interested in uh, podcasting, Quill, actually we are developing more of a library for resources there. So although like we do curate it, it's, I do believe that there is a lot of really good stuff there. And Ali, my previous co-founder, she runs all of that. So she's been doing some really amazing work there. So I have to give her a shout out. In terms of other resources, I would say that I just find when I listen to podcasts, if you're a listener, think about when you're listening to your shows, not just about engaging with the content, like obviously you want to enjoy it, 
But what I also do is I listen to it and think, oh, I like that sound effect. That would be good to put into the show. Or I think, oh, I like how the host is connecting with me here or <laughs> like that kind of stuff, right? Um, or I like this jingle or what and whatnot. So I think that's important as well as like, don't be afraid to take inspiration. I think that's probably my two biggest ones. I, in terms of specific resources, I'd have to probably actually look at... Yeah, no, this is perfect. Thank you so much. Now for 2021 and going forward into the next year, COVID, no COVID, what do you think are some of the big trends that are coming up in the industry or in general that you see? I think we're going to see a lot more audio integration into social media networks. So Twitter's already started that with um, iOS, I believe. They are implementing voice tweets which is really cool. I also think that when we look at things like Google Home and like the voice in general, I think that's going to be a really big thing for podcasts. And I'm curious to see if that increases the number of listeners, especially now that A, like we are stuck in our homes and B, we have those networks. I'm wondering, you know, if maybe podcasting is going to be another main communication network there. I also just find they're more convenient. Like you can be listening to a podcast while you're doing your dishes, right? So <laughs> you can be consuming information. And I think where we are in the world today, like you look at how fast everything is evolving, technology and everything. And I feel like humans are just here trying to keep up. And so podcasting is an easy way to be able to do that. You can keep up while also doing everything else that you need to be doing. So those are some trends that I think are probably going to come up as well. And I think in terms of sponsorship, I would really like to see a simplified sponsor model. So people know how much to actually charge for their sponsorship slots. Cause I think it's a big gray area in the industry right now. And we may or may not be coming up with something. So we'll stay tuned. <laughs> I love it. I'm very excited to see what you guys are going to come up with. Now, if you could go back to your younger self and give some advice to yourself or someone who is starting out as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as a podcaster, basically taking on a new challenge, what would be your advice? I would say the biggest thing is be where you are right now and don't think that you need everything all at once. The biggest thing for me is I am just in general a very, I would like to call it driven, but it's really just impatience. When I am doing things, I like to move things quickly and I like things to be fast. And when I start something, it's like I have an idea and I execute and I want to get it done and I want to be at the finish line. And then I want to be looking at it and I want to see the results and like, it's too fast. And I think some of the biggest mistakes I've ever made and some of the reasons that, you know, OMH, there were moments where, you know, we screwed up clients or we maybe weren't at the level that we should have been was because we were just trying to take on too much too fast. Like the analogy that I always use is, you can't be at step one and expect to be performing at the level of like someone who is at step 10. You can't just skip 10 steps. Like your legs are not long enough for that. So you might be able to skip a couple steps and be able to figure it out. You'll probably be a little wobbly, but you can probably manage, but you can't go from step one to step 10 and expect that you're going to be performing. You're not a prodigy. No one is. So I think that's really the biggest thing is be patient with yourself. And also it doesn't need to be that fast. Like be okay with where you are right now and think about like the process and think about why you're doing what you're doing and what purpose you have and maybe why you're grateful for that. And I wish that when I was building OMH, I would have taken the time prior to COVID 
to sit down and be like, you know what? We're doing good things here. And I'm really grateful for everything that I have rather than constantly wanting to get to that step 10. So yeah, I think that would be my advice for anyone who's aspiring to do entrepreneurship. I like it. Leading from a place of gratitude and reflection. This is this is really good. Really great advice. Thank you. Okay. So every guest that comes on the show, we ask a millennial is, a millennial should be, and a millennial is not. Millennial is the future. A millennial should be valued for their opinions, especially when bringing new perspectives. And a millennial is not entitled, especially when they're focused on their own well-being. <laughs> I'm not even pretend that you came up with it on the spot because this was amazing. Uh, you did really well. Thank you for those ones. Okay. Anything that we didn't cover on this, I guess, podcast, didn't mention, and anything you'd like to share that maybe I haven't asked? No, I think this was awesome. I think this was a great conversation. I'm so happy to be a part of it. Thanks for having me. And we can always, you know what, I'm excited to have you again uh, next year to, you know, just follow up with where are you guys at and how is it going? And, you know, where are you on your hustling journey? Are you sitting back still? I don't think so. I think you'll come up with 17 other things that you're undertaking, growing and tools you're creating. So I'm very excited to have you on the show next year. But for now, where do people find you? Where they connect with you? How do they get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say if you want to get in touch with me, I'm always accessible. I love uh, meeting new people and talking. So feel free to hit me up on Instagram at it's Stephanie Lynn, or you can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Stephanie Andrews. Just add a note if you're going to connect with me because I tend to just decline random people. So just make sure you add something that says why you're connecting. Otherwise I will decline and I don't mean to. So yeah, those are the two places. And you can also check out our work at quillet.io. We have all of the podcasts that I've produced there, um, as well as some really amazing resources for both indie podcasters and brands. You are fantastic. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to catch up. Bye.